Bonjour, I'm Brett Dillon, and this is The Movie Chronicles. Grab a baguette and some coffee, settle down, and learn a little about French films in 1976. We begin with The Gouratypes, director and script Agnes Varda, director of photography Nureth Aves and William Uchansky, editors Henri Chotte and Gordon Swear, actors Lucien Bose, Léonce de Brosian, Marcel de Brosian and Rosalie Varda. The title of this film comes from an early form of photography, and Agnes Varda lives on Rue de Gour, the street named after the inventor of this process. Agnes takes as her theme this street and the people who live and work on it. She sees the street as locked in a rapidly fading past, like a Degura type. The film focuses the film focuses on the baker, the butcher, the hairdresser, and the perfumer stroke chemist. However, this being a Varda film, a fay humour enters the picture when she uses a performance by a magician to comment on the people through the editing process. Sadly, the perfumer's wife seems to have Alzheimer's disease. For the first half, she seems like someone completely disinterested in the filming process, and then, as the film unravels, certain behaviours cue you in. The compulsion at a certain time every day to leave the shop without knowing where or why, for instance. The kicker, for me, was when a customer with a fur coat entered the store. The wife got up close behind her and started to fondle the coat. The image is of a creepy old lady invading someone's space, and the customer is very uneasy about this encounter. The reality is that this is fairly typical behaviour for someone with this degenerative disease. The Degura type was the first photographic process widely available to the general public. Inventor Louis Jacquemand Degura released the process in 1839. By 1860, it had become old school. The process involved polishing a silver-coated copper plate, and then coating the surface with light-sensitive chemicals. The plate would then be exposed to light. The image would then be revealed by exposing the plate to mercury vapour. The image would have the light sensitivity removed by further chemical exposure, and then the hole would be locked behind a glass plate. It was very easy to wipe the image from the plate. At this point, like me, you're probably glad this was such a short-lived process. I'm glad I don't have to talk about the number of people who keeled over after being exposed to this chemical cocktail. To invent this device, de Gaulle went into partnership with Nesefre Nispe. Nispe had already invented a camera device to aid theatrical scene painting work. Nagur needed Nispe's device, and Nispe needed Nagur's chemical knowledge. Nispe died in 1933, and his son Isidore inherited the project. In the new agreement, Isidore acknowledged that de Gaulle had improved his father's invention by 60 to 80 times, and therefore he allowed de Gaulle the naming rights 
to the new invention. Director Nureth Aviz was born on March the 11th, 1945, in Tel Aviv, Palestine. She was the first woman in France to be recognized officially as a DOP. This occurred in 1975. At least this took less than 100 years. Director of photography William Lipschansky was born on October 26, 1937 in Paris, France, and he died in 2010. William's first job as DOP was shooting Agnes Varda's 1965 film Elsa La Rose. He was soon sought after by the leading directors of the French New Wave movement and even English director Peter Brook for the six-hour epic The Mahavrata, 1986. Now is not the time to play pocket billiards, although I do need to find some small change, also known as pocket money. Director and script, Francois Truffaut. Script, Suzanne Schiffman. Director of photography, Pierre-William Glenn. Editor, Yann Dedet. Actors, Jean-Francois Stevinin, Georges Demousseau. Philippe Goldman. Laurent Devlamink. Eva Truffaut. Corinne Boucard and Sebastian Mark. Small Change takes as its theme the lines from Night of the Hunter about how children endure. It shows what children must endure. These aren't the Hollywood Phoebes painted in rosy waves of nostalgic yearning. They are real children, irritating and perplexing. Somewhat in the style of Agnes Varda, and certainly with her pixieish sense of humour, Truffaut turns his camera on the inhabitants of Thiel. He is interested in the children and their perspectives. He, very heavy-handedly in my opinion, because he expounds the theme at the 30-minute mark and then gives us a lecture in case we missed the point at the end. Children bounce back. They endure. This is frustrating as he has shown us this in the most controversial sequence of the film. I've never watched this film in its entirety with anyone else because of this sequence. They always walk out before it reaches the conclusion because they find it so disturbing. I want to counter Truffaut's argument by pointing out it is a trick of perspective. It is only the lack of continuity that creates this perception. Children age and new children arrive. The new children are blank slates on which the community writes. Truffaut's thesis exclude those who have a full slate. Or, to put it another way, children endure until they learn they don't have to. The adults, the one with full slates, are shown as ineffectual, the teachers, or dangerous. Julien Leclos' mother tortures and beats them. Although I note Truffaut spends time on the discovery of Leclou's abuse, he spends none on its ramification. Instead, he cuts to a teacher lecturing the students. We never see how the children process these events. Instead, we cut to an epilogue in which Patrick comes as close to getting his end away as this film will allow. Patrick and Leclou are mirror images. Patrick has no mother and a crippled father. Leclou has no father and an emotionally crippled mother. This is the closest the film gets to class consciousness 
by illustrating the middle-class children are not aware of their class consciousness. The pair share only one scene, and that is abruptly interrupted when Leclou ensures his mother and Patrick never meet. Patrick is unconscious of class differences, even though he sees Julian lives in a barn. Leclou seems painfully aware of the differences. He quizzes an older boy on what the boy has seen on TV last night so he can pretend to his friends that he has also seen the shows. He steals for them when they can't afford to buy things themselves. He also uses them to see a film free and steals from them. In his defense, this seems to be food. There are two movie scenes in this film. The second scene illustrates how Patrick's obsession with a married woman is having a negative effect on his other relationships. The first reveals that, because of his home situation, Leclou can only have a transactional relationship with others. Many scenes involve food. A girl scams food from her neighbours, the brothers make their own breakfast, Patrick returns from shopping for food, He stays over at a friend's place for dinner because he has a crush on his friend's mother. Gregory carries the baguette and plays with the pasta. The baby is breastfed. The epilogue is set in a dining hall. Small change can appear to be an outlier in Truffaut's oeuvre. In particular, it can be interpreted as a response to the Italian neorealist movement of the 50s, the casting of the inhabitants of Thiers as talent and the documentaries of Agnes Varda from the 60s and 70s, the use of juxtaposition in the editing to create commentary on the action. It doesn't take long, however, to detect Truffaut's usual obsessions. The first is film itself. There are only two scenes set in a movie theatre, but there are many movie references. The poster for rail travel seems to me to be a reference to Hitchcock's North by Northwest. The toddler in danger sequence pokes fun at Hitchcock's remark, I only made one mistake, I let the bomb go off. The cat is the MacGuffin and Truffaut proves the bomb can go off and still subvert audience expectations. Truffaut even does a Hitchcock-style cameo at the beginning of the film, playing the father of the girl who writes the postcard. The Toddler in Danger sequence shows what a bravura filmmaker Truffaut was. It is a dictum of the business, never work with children or animals. To get a toddler to perform on cue is almost impossible. To get a cat respond on cue is next to impossible. To get a toddler and a cat to act on cue is impossible. Yet Truffaut achieves this with apparent ease. There is also an obsession with sex in this film. Toddler Gregory has a girlfriend at play school. The boys spy on a woman undressing in a window. I've already mentioned Patrick's obsession. The teachers discuss the boys masturbating in class and the school merging with the girls' school. The end result is a document that illustrates a particular moment in time. Their haircuts the bell-bottom trousers, the clothes and wallpaper in vivid colours, and a France that gets its primary cultural reference from foreign sources, which Truffaut satirises in the documentary within the film about a man who communicates 
only in whistles because his parents refused to speak the other's language. This documentary also references the French film Children of Paradise. Scriptwriter Suzanne Schiffman was born on September 27, 1929, in Paris, France, and she died in 2001. Suzanne was studying art history at the Sorbonne before her career was sidetracked into film. She worked first on continuity and then as assistant and co-scriptwriter on films for Francois Truffaut. Ooh la la! It wouldn't be a real trip into French cinema if we didn't take a little detour into softcore porn. I bring you Billitis. Director David Hamilton, script Robert Boussineau, Catherine Brillet, and Jacques Nahum. Director of photography Bernard Dallancourt, editor Henri Copy and Claire Penchot. Music Francis Lai. Actors Patty Darbenville, Mona Christensen, Giles Cohier, Bernard Gerardo, and Matthew Carrier. I seem to be cursed in my viewing experience of Billitis. I've only ever seen it in old prints, where the colour has faded and the print is a little rough around the edges. Just enough remains to hint at how it would look in a pristine print. David Hamilton was a photographer noted for his soft-porn photographs of nubile teen girls. He took the theme of nubile teen girls for this film. Director of photography Pierre-William Glenn takes pains to recreate Hamilton's visual style, the strong Mediterranean light and the gauze filters to create a sense of pansexuality. The girls on push bikes is just the beginning of a theme involving bikes in the story. Bilitis is first seen at an all-girls school. Director David Hamilton likes to show them nude or in various stages of undress. He also implies the school is a hotbed of lesbian activity. This has always felt to me like the director injecting his own sexual fantasies. However, this is the bitter pill one must swallow in order to follow the narrative. Bilitis is unsure if she likes boys. One thing she is sure of, she doesn't like her mother's sleazy new boyfriend. She goes home after graduation and meets a cute boy on the beach. They keep bumping into each other and become friends. She asks him to help her find a new boyfriend for her mother. He wants more than she is prepared to give. When he turns to her mother, she becomes jealous. Bilitis and her mother have sex. Hang on, is this an Italian movie? No, it's set in France. Inconceivable! What? Lesbian sex is inconceivable. I really would like to see a decent print of the film. Its softcore porn narrative is bog-standard for the period. It is the photography that makes this film a must-see. Scriptwriter Catherine Brillat was born on July thirteenth, 1948, in Brasseur, France. Catherine is known as the porn auteur because her oeuvre deals with issues of sex, gender, and sibling rivalry. She said, The problem is that senses create the concept of obscenity. By supposedly trying to protect us, they create an absurd concept of what is obscene. Of her career, she observed, 
I am the pariah of French cinema. It makes me very happy because hatred is invigorating. All true artists are hated. Only conformists are ever adored. Actor Patty Darbinville was born on May the 25th, 1951, in New York City, New York, USA. She was 17 before her mother allowed her to appear in an Andy Warhol film. A lesbian sex scene, by the way. This provided the dubious inspiration for the Cat Stevens' Lady de Barnville song. Next episode, I'll talk about Roald Dahl adaptions, released in 1996. Until then, check out some Movie Chronicles ebooks from an e-store near you. And don't deny yourself the pleasure of becoming a mindless pod person by joining me on Patreon or Buzzsprout. Until next time, beware of electricity.